Well, as we continue, let me encourage you to take your Bible in whatever form you have it, and you can go with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And I think that as we continue to journey through the book of John, which is where we are on Sunday mornings, it's going to become clearer and clearer to us if we're listening closely that, um, yes, as, the, as those men said last week in chapter 7, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like this man, Jesus, and we ought to be desperate to hear what he has to say. And so this week and over the coming weeks, let's as a church pay attention to the things that Jesus says about himself and in response to those who talk with him about the things that he says. And I think that if we do this uh, week by week, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and friends, friends, that's how, uh, that's, that's how everything we prayed for starts, and that's how, that's how God builds uh, healthy followers of Jesus. He does it, uh, it, it as much as we would hope, maybe. I know as much as I hope. He doesn't, just, he doesn't just zap us once, and we are perfectly mature in Christ. He does it conversation by conversation, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, year by year, until he decides that he's finished with us. And I think that as we keep doing this through John's gospel, we will, we will become better and stronger followers of Jesus and so fulfill our purpose as a church. I am very thankful to be with you. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor of Adult Ministries. Let me encourage you, as you're uh, finding your place there in John 8, to access the sermon notes. And you've got a couple of ways to do that. There was a hard copy back there on the table. You can have that, or you can have it on the app. Just click the homepage, sermon notes. You'll find them there. That's going to be a helpful guide as we, uh, as we work through uh, what Jesus has to tell us here in John chapter 8. So if you've found your place there. Let me invite you to please stand as you were able, and we're going to give our attention to to God's Word. Let me just catch us up and remind us where we are. In John chapter 7 and 8, we are with Jesus at what was called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of three pilgrim feasts for ancient Jews. They traveled to the city of Jerusalem three times a year. In this case, they're in the city of Jerusalem. Thousands of them have come from all over Israel to commemorate specifically the time when when their ancestors were in the wilderness, living in tents and booths and things, traveling on their way to the promised land. And so they're there for a week to commemorate this. Jesus is at this festival in John chapter 7 and 8 and really into, into chapter 9. And he's going to take this opportunity, as we'll learn in just a minute, to reveal himself in a very dramatic way and in a way that's very important for us to hear. So we're going to start in verse 12, John chapter 8, verse 12, and we're going to give our focus down to verse 30. I want us to read together verse 12, and then I just want you to read as I uh, start there in verse 13. So let's read together verse 12, and I will read the rest. The words are on the screen. These are the words of God. John chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now listen as I read, beginning in verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself, your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, 
for his hour had not yet come. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself because he says where I go, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you, you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Then they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying from the beginning. I have many things to say to you and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as the Father taught me, I speak these things, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please him. And as he spoke these words, many believed in him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we say yes and amen to everything we've heard in this service as we have sung of your mercy and of your grace. And yes, Lord, all we can do when it comes to the good things that you want to do in our church for your name and our good, be it revival, repentance, a certain conversation, sharing the gospel, all of the good things that we want to have to mark us as vital, spiritually-minded, spirit-filled people, you must do. We can set the wood in place. You have to make the fire fall. And so, Jesus, we are dependent upon you even now as we're gathered around your word. And so, would you do more than we could ask or imagine? And, Lord, as we're continuing in prayer, we, there are some away from us today that we want to give thanks to you. We, we give you thanks to those 60-plus of our, of our elementary school kids that are away at our winter getaway this weekend. We give you thanks for Pastor Brian and for his staff. And we are expectant to hear of all the good things that you did among these children as they were there at this camp hearing the gospel. And so, Lord, we give you thanks for this and much more. We ask that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Take your seats, friends. Thanks. Okay. I think we can get it, John chapter 8, with three headings, and then I'm going to try to draw it to a conclusion uh, and lead us into worship. And so, first, friends, let's consider from John chapter 8, verses 12 to 30, number one, what Jesus claims about himself what Jesus claims about himself. The, the truth is this, Jesus Christ made outrageous claims about himself. Um, the, the kinds of claims that we just, we just cannot afford to ignore them. It is just true, as I said when I came up, no one speaks like this man. No one is willing to talk like him. Most of these are found in the book of John. Things like, I am the bread of life, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way and the truth and the life, I am the true vine, and as we see here, I am the light of the world. And in each case, Jesus is graciously revealing to us who he is. This is the question. It's embedded right in our text, verse 25. Who are you? That's the question. Who is Jesus? It's as if John, the, the, the writer of this book, wants to take a microphone and kind of hold it up to Jesus' mouth in chapters 7 and 8 specifically and say, tell us who you are. Who are you that we may trust you and believe in you? And in this instance, at this very dramatic moment, Jesus takes another time to tell us who he is. And so friends, week after week, again, we have an opportunity to learn about who Jesus is. And here, in this moment, again, we're with Jesus at this festival called the, the, the Festival of Tabernacles, or uh, sometimes it was called the Festival of Lights, or the Festival of Booths. For a week, Jewish people went to Jerusalem, and they celebrated those years when they were wandering in the wilderness. It lasted from Sabbath to Sabbath for a full week. 
It involved two main elements, water and light. Now, two weeks ago, we learned about water as Jesus revealed himself as the one who can quench our thirst and help others have their thirst quenched. Now, here's what would happen at this festival and why it matters for what Jesus says when he says it. In the evening of each night of this festival, this was in the fall, probably August, September, maybe October, so the days are shorter. As the day was drawing to a close and as night was coming, so around what we would call dusk, Four large candelabras, so just massive, think just standing chandeliers, uh, would be brought into the largest courtyard in the temple. And at the top of these four large candelabras would be these four huge bowls holding some 60 gallons of oil with wicks coming out of them. And um, priests that uh, either wanted to or drew the short straw would climb up ladders to go and light these protruding wicks. And all at once, they would do it. Picture being at something like a tree lighting ceremony at Christmas time. That's probably an equivalent. Everybody gathers around. Everybody's looking in the same direction. You know what's going to happen next. The, the, the tree is lit. Everybody oohs and ahs. You focus for a minute. You think about why you're there. And then everybody kind of starts to talk with one another. So these would be lit and light would just, would just bounce off of these four big bowls. It's a massive, it's just a massive show. And this was an incredible thing given the fact there's no electric light. It was said that when these four candelabras were lit, there was not a porch in Jerusalem that did not reflect the light. It was a massive display commemorating God's faithfulness and goodness to them as a fire by night and as a cloud by day as their ancestors traveled through the wilderness. And it is at this moment, at some point, as these lights are, lights are lit, that Jesus steps forward and says, I am the light of the world. It is hard. It may be hard for us to see that in our imaginations, but friends, we could hardly imagine a more meaningful moment for Jesus to make this claim. Now, there are many things that we could say about light and its effects. Many things the Bible has to say about light and dark. There's a lot of things we could say about light and dark just by naturally observing the world around us, right? Light reveals what's there. Darkness conceals. Light helps us see the truth. Darkness helps us hide what we would rather not be found. We speak of having seen the light as a revelation, of of having come to a knowledge of something as a metaphor, And although there's much to say about it, what I want you to understand is that in John 8, verse 12, when Jesus says to them again, I am the light of the world, he is no doubt, what we must understand is that he is no doubt claiming to be God. That fire, Jesus says, that gave you light, that came between you and the Egyptian army, that illuminated your path through the wilderness, that was a glory cloud by day and fire by night that led you and guided you and protected you and in many ways was your source of life. I am that light. Truly, I am God. Yes, my friends, as Psalm 27 says, the Lord Jesus is our light and our salvation. Now, it, it said, uh, let's make some application here just for how we engage with friends and coworkers. What, every time as we're trying to make disciples, which inevitably begins by helping someone understand who Jesus is and what it means to have a relationship with him, the best thing to do is to help them engage directly with the claims of Christ. Because then they got to deal with him. So like, well, I don't like what Jesus says. Well, take it up with him, you know. Well... It's, and it's said as we do that, uh, sometimes it's said, well, I don't, did, did Christians believe 
Maybe someone has said to you, you really believe, I've had people say, that Jesus is God, that Jesus wasn't just a great man who was elevated to a particular position, that he actually existed before he was born. And I'm like, yes, I do believe that. And he became a baby. Yes, I do believe that. And he died and rose. Yes, yes, we're on it. And then, and then if none of that's true, pack it up and go home. And they'll say, well, when did he ever say? Did he ever say he was God? Friends, let's, let's equip ourselves as believers for just a minute. Jesus was consistently claiming that he was God. Here's what I mean. Jesus here says, I am the light of the world. Every other religious teacher or cult leader, be it from Islam or, or, from, or from Buddhism or from Hinduism, whatever it may be, every single one of them, either in their writings or in their teachings, says something like, there is the way. There is the truth. There is the life. Every religious teacher or cult leader says, let me show you where the light is. They say, let me point you to the bread. Let me point you to the water. What's Jesus do? He doesn't say, let me show you. He says, look at me. Jesus doesn't say, there's the way. He says, I am the way. Jesus doesn't say, there is the truth. He says, I am the truth. Jesus doesn't say, the light's over there. He says, I am your light. I am the light in a dark world. You see, he was always claiming to be someone singular and unique. He's consistently claiming to be God. Who else can say, you will never find Muhammad saying, come to me, all who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't talk that way. Only Jesus talks that way. And if you understand this is what Jesus is doing, you'll get, he's saying this all the time. He's always claiming to be someone unique. And we learned that this claim in John 12 is qualified and expanded. So let's consider, second, friends, what Jesus promises to those who follow him. What Jesus promises to those who follow him. When we read the Bible all the way through the Bible again and again, year after year, we pray that you're reading the Bible with our plan or you have your own to just consistently over the years be taking in God's word. What, you, what we constantly find is a God who makes and keeps promises. This is what he does. He makes and he keeps promises. And those promises are given to us to, in the words of Charles Spurgeon, cash them in. God, you said this. Okay. <laughs> like a child coming to their father. Here I am. I'm as dependent as I can be. That's Christianity. Just coming to him, cashing in a promise. You said you would do it. And, and we just find, do we not find that those who trust him fully find him wholly true? And that we prove him over and over again that he is faithful. So we have good reason to believe Jesus when he says, look again at verse 12, I am the light of the world. Now notice the qualification. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now that's a promise. You need to read that as a promise. That's the structure of the language. Jesus is promising you something. You won't walk in darkness, and who wants that? Who wants that? I don't want darkness. I don't want anything to do with it. The cross has already exposed me for all that I am anyway. You know, friends, friends, if we are with Jesus today, we are in the light. You know what that means? We've already been shown to be exactly who we are. Sinners by nature and choice. And you know what we can do, my friends? You know what we can do when the cross of Christ has already shed light on who we are? Confess our sins. Be honest about who we are. Be free and humble to love and serve others. I got nothing to hide. God had to die for me, you see. And we want to be done with the darkness. And so he says, you won't walk in darkness, but have the light of life. 
This is a promise to all who follow him, who follow him in this dark world. Yes, sin and its effects are all around us all the time. I know they are. The difference for us is that we follow Jesus, whose word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And my friends, to trust Jesus at, or to follow Jesus at least must mean trusting him, learning from him, and submitting to him. It must at least mean that. I think there's a wonderful picture of what it means to follow Jesus from an unlikely place, although it, it's embedded a little bit in this context. Just write this reference down. I'm going to read it quickly. Numbers chapter 9, starting in verse 15. Listen to this, Numbers chapter 9, verse 15. Listen to what God's people did then. Now on the day that the tabernacle was raised up, the cloud covered the tabernacle and the tent of the testimony. From evening until morning, it was above the tabernacle like the appearance of fire. So it always was. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was taken up above the tabernacle, after that, the children of Israel would journey. And in the place where the cloud settled, there the children of Israel would pitch their tents. And at the command of the Lord, the children of Israel would journey. And at the command of the Lord, they would camp. So when he said go, they went. When he said stop, they stopped. Even when the cloud continued long, many days above the tabernacle, the children of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not journey. So it was when the cloud was above the tabernacle a few days, according to the command of the Lord, they would remain encamped. And according to the command of the Lord, they would journey. Verse 21 of Numbers 9. So it was when the cloud remained only from evening until morning, when the cloud was taken up in the morning, then they would journey. Whether by day or by night, whether the cloud was taken up, they would journey. Friends, that's how we follow Jesus. When he says stay, we stay. When he says go, we go. We submit to him, we follow him, we surrender to him. That's how to follow Jesus. We do it by his word and we do it by prayer, but we are following Jesus, enjoying relational fellowship with him. This is the promise that Jesus gives, and there's something precious here. He doesn't just say, we'll not walk in darkness, but he says, we'll have the light of life. We ought to love the word have. I don't know what you feel like you have today. Uh, you, may, you may just feel like you don't have much financially, like you don't have much emotionally, maybe that, like you don't have much psychologically, maybe the world is just turning upside down. Maybe you're thinking, look, spiritually, I don't have much to bring to the table. But here's what you have. If you are presently trusting in Christ, you have the light of life. It's yours. You have the light that leads to life, eternal life. This is how John opened his book. Okay, first few verses of John, John introduced Jesus like this. In him was life, and the light was the light of men. John 1, 4. This is who Jesus is. And so I don't, I, you may just feel, I'm just dragging myself in. Well, hurl yourself out with the knowledge that if you're trusting in Christ, I don't care what you feel like. You have all the good things he says you have. And that's what it means to be in Christ, and this is his promise. How often... My brothers and sisters, in our ministries, in our marriages, in our community groups, wherever it may be, do we reflect on all that we have by virtue of our union with Christ? Because we would find that we are rich. We ought to think about it when we were cooking dinner, getting coffee in the break room, walking to class, or sitting at a red light. Now, making claims like this was controversial then, and it's controversial now. And so if we are clear about who Jesus is, conflict will be the likely result. We saw this back in chapter 7 two weeks ago. Division, conflict, who are you? Jesus divides. If we communicate Jesus clearly, there ought to be a little bit of, hmm, I'm not sure. Um, I, can, I can believe that or not believe that. What I can't do is ignore it. 
And that's what happens here starting in verse 13, friends, as we third consider what Jesus says to those who reject him. What Jesus says to those who reject him. Pick it up with me in verse 13. Where we see that first, Jesus gives a defense. Jesus gives a defense. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself, your witness is not true. Now this, something similar to this happened in chapter 5 where they say, hey, uh, back up your claims. Okay, can you verify what you're saying? You seem to be speaking all by yourself. Can you, can you make these things clear? Jesus answers in verse 14. Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. Now notice why he says that. For I know where I came from and where I am going. Okay, so essentially he's God again. But you do not know where I came from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. Now that's true, Deuteronomy 19. I am the one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Simply put, in in verses 14 to 18, Jesus answers their question by again making clear that he enjoys a unique relationship with his Father in such a way that when you see Jesus, you see the Father. And we know it's all about the Father because in verse 19, then they said to him, where is your Father? Okay, so Jesus, there's a few, there's a lot of people here at the temple, a couple thousand of us, if not more. Is your dad here? Now, these aren't innocent questions, okay? These are not, um, these are not uh, uh, genuine inquirers, okay? These guys are, these guys are after Jesus. And um, the, the aggression towards Jesus is just, it's just kicked up a gear every chapter from this point forward, that eventually leading to his crucifixion. But we, so he says, and then he says, Jesus answered, this is the end of verse 19, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Jesus' basic point is that when I make these claims, check out this phrase in the middle of verse 16, I am not alone. I am with the father. What I say, the father says. So Jesus says, what do you mean the fa- my father is not here? What do you mean there's this second person not verifying my claims? Because when I'm here, the father's here. Because I am never alone. I always do what pleases him, Jesus says. Jesus will say this again in chapter 10, verse 30. He will say, I and the father are one. In chapter 14, starting in verse 8, Jesus will say to Philip, one of his disciples, Lord, show us the father And that will be enough for us? I love Philip's faith there. Look, I got one thing. Just show me God. I don't need, I I think Philip, I don't need riches. Just show me, please. Just enough already. I want to know God. And Jesus answers, don't you know me, Philip? This is verse 9 of chapter 14. Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Friends, you cannot have a positive relationship with God apart from Jesus. He will not let that happen. We make of this fact that Jesus is claiming to be equal with God. And so, in verse 18, I am the one who bears witness of myself. There's one, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. There's two. There's two to verify his claims. Now, I think John pauses in verse 20 for a specific reason. Look with me at verse 20 of chapter 8. Look at this little note here. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. So the treasury was a part of the temple where you would give offerings. And no one laid hands on him 
for his hour had not yet come. Now, when John, the book of John speaks of Jesus' hour, it's always a reference to the hour when he would die every time. And it's very clear, Jesus is going to die when it's appointed for him to die. Now, I think John adds verse 20 to make sure that we get the point that the things Jesus is saying are the kinds of things that will lead to him being seized and crucified. Okay? I mean, this laid hands on him is very aggressive. Well, they would eventually lay hands on him, arrest him, and kill him, and execute him. So John's just making sure we understand, he's saying the kinds of things that create the kind of thing that happens to Jesus at the end of his life, where he is crucified. But we see God's sovereign control for his hour had not yet come. This will happen at the moment God intends. And everything in our lives intends at the moment that God intends. To reflect on this sovereignty should comfort us all that God controls like this. Friends, first, Jesus gives a defense. And second, we see this. Jesus gives a warning. He gives a warning. Starting in verse 21... And it's a warning that we all need to hear. Now, for the sake of time, I won't read through it. Let me, just, let me just give you a brief summary of what Jesus says going down to verse 30. Yes, he would, as he says in verse 21, soon die, rise, and return to his father and sit down at his right hand. I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. That must mean I'm going to heaven and you're not coming. Those he was speaking to are worldly in the truest sense, for they have not been born again or born from above. He says this in verse 23. His message has not changed about who he is. He has been saying he's one with the Father from the beginning. Verse 25, he is the Son of God and Son of Man, very God and very God, one with the Father. And yes, he is the one who will be lifted up literally on the cross, completing his Father's mission to die, be buried, rise from the dead, showing that, yes, he is the great I am, verse 28. Let me just point out something to you, verse 28. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And it says, he, Jesus is saying, I am. I am. I am the Lord, God in the flesh. But what we must see, what I want us to see, is the kindness of Jesus to warn us about sin. The kindness of Jesus to speak directly to us. I want you to notice three times Jesus uses this phrase, will die in your sins. Verse 21, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sins. Verse 23, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you, you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, this is worth pausing to think about. Jesus says that there is more than one way to die. Because everybody dies. So when Jesus says die in your sins... He must mean that everybody dies, but not everybody dies in the same way. To die in our sins in this context means to die in unbelief, unless you believe that I am he, verse 24. To die in sin, to die with those sins unforgiven, and so personally left to stand before the all-holy God with no defense except our own inherited guilt and sin. Can you imagine standing before the thrice-holy God with no defense, unclothed in the righteousness of Christ, that kind of thing. Friends, God is that holy, and you and I are that sinful that to stand before him with no defense is as dangerous 
as approaching the surface of the sun, clothed in Kleenex. It's dangerous. We don't stand a chance apart from what is given to us in Christ. Then we're safe. That's it. But there is good news. Look, everyone dies. And I understand that thinking about death is not always easy and comfortable. And it's not even common for most churches to even talk about sin. But especially in our church of our size, as one of your pastors, I just understand that all of us are touched by the reality and effects of death currently in some way. We're praying for someone or we're heading to a funeral for someone or we're thinking about someone. And that's not even to think about the questions we all have ourselves, like when will it happen and how will it happen? I heard a pastor one time say, it was at a pastor's conference thing, and he, and he said something that, that I've never been able to forget, and it had us all kind of thinking. So this guy had been in ministry for a long time. And, and he said to all of us, he said, I, um, if given the chance, he said, I would always rather choose to officiate a funeral than I would officiate a wedding. And he said, weddings are, weddings are great. I do, I've done, I do quite a few weddings. Weddings are lots of fun. But he said, a funeral, a, a funeral is just such this... It's just such this palatable moment for the gospel. I mean, I mean, and he said, look, everybody in the room at a funeral, everybody's future is staring right at them. I mean, we're all, I mean who can deny what at this point? He said, he, I, I love this pastor's language. He said a funeral is a gospel softball. Just knock it out, man. I mean, we're all going to die, but I've got good news. I know one who died, and by dying, defeated death because he rose again. And a box couldn't hold him. A fancy casket couldn't hold him. A grave couldn't hold him. A tomb couldn't hold him. His name is Jesus. And when he, went, when he defeated death by dying, he went back up through death. He de- he, it's not like he defeated death through another avenue. He came up through victory by dying. He died. He took our sin and our guilt as, of, of any and all who will trust in him as was far down as is humanly possible into the grave itself where we all belonged. And he came back up through it in the resurrection announcing to the, our neighbors and the nations that he's Lord of that. And what that means is all this talk... You know what Jesus says in John 11? He says that if you believe in me, though you die, you shall live. Look, everybody in this room dies. You don't have to die like this. There's two ways to die. You die in your sins, and I plead with you to not do it. To trust in Christ. Or, Revelation 14, 13, we can die in the Lord. Two ways. That's it. And, when, and, die, and, and, and trusting, okay, so when we want to pay, the, when we die in our sins, if the wages of sin is death, and it is, I pay that penalty myself. Or I can transfer my trust to another one and let him pay it for me. And so we can die in our sins or we can die in the Lord. We can believe this gospel. And I encourage you, if you are here and you are not a Christian, this is the best place for you to be. I want you to hear me. Death is coming. It is imminent. You will not escape it, and you will not escape God himself but you can be safe when you approach him through Jesus. Trust in Christ now. Let's draw this very clear conclusion, friends, as we come to an end. I think it's very obvious in this passage and in many others that there are only two ways to live, and we could say only two ways to die, in the light or in the dark. Only two. Our world really likes options. 
Just go to your local Hy-Vee. Our culture resists this. Our culture resists a very clear this or that. But as believers, we know better. We know that spiritually speaking, speaking in the way that eternally matters, there is light and there is dark. Better yet, there is lost and there is found. There is dead and there is alive. There is forgiven and there is unforgiven. There is heaven and there is hell. There is a wise man who builds his house on a rock and there is a foolish man who builds his house on a sand. There's a narrow gate that leads to life and a wide gate that leads to destruction. But hear me, there is no third gate. And this knowledge ought to make us clear. It ought to make us urgent, not arrogant, not us versus them. If we are in the light, then we know this is only because he has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It is only because he has, Colossians 1, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his son. Now look, that's 1 Peter 2 and Colossians 1, and I'm not mentioned in any of it except for the one who's receiving things, like being called and being delivered. It ought to make us wise with how we engage with how we categorize people. Friends, it is helpful to know whether I'm an introvert or an extrovert. It's helpful to know uh, what kind of class I grew up in. There's categories that are helpful. I'm just saying none of them are eternally significant. Not as eternally significant as light and dark, dead and alive, in Christ or outside of Christ. These are the categories that matter significantly. And what it ought to do is compel each of us to follow Jesus, the light of the world. Here's the summons. Follow Christ, the light of the world. When he says go, you go. When he says stay, you stay. And we can do this. We can do this as individuals. We can do this as a church in this dark world until, until, my friends, we enter that city. The city that has no need for sun or moon because the Lord its God is its glory and the Lamb is its lamp. And until then, we journey on as pilgrims standing in Christ. Let's do this together. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you alone have the words of eternal life. You alone are the light of the world. And like the people in Numbers 9 who followed the cloud and the fire, We want to follow you. We ask for grace to follow you. When you tell us to stay, we will stay. When you tell us to go, we will go. Because we want to learn from you, trust in you, and submit to you. Lord Jesus, you said in this passage, I am never alone. And the good news is, neither are we. Today, we are not alone. We have your spirit to lead and to guide. And though it is true that we will, we may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, indeed, we will all walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We have no need to fear, for you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. As Psalm 139 says, if I ascend, if I go down to Sheol, you are there. If I ascend to the highest of heights, you are there. Where can I go from your spirit? Where from I flee from your presence? And here's our hope. When we are walking through that valley, when we feel the darkness encroaching, you, the Lord who is the light, to you, the darkness is not even dark. And so Jesus, as we sing in a moment of all that we have in you, would you take these truths plant them deep within us and shape and fashion us in in your likeness to be equipped and ready to follow you.
Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.